0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals.
1: It's the week of September 22nd, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 149 of Defender Radio. The shocking news out of Saskatchewan that an additional 100 permits for hunting and trapping wolves in Wildlife Management Zone 49 made a splash across our social media platforms last week. In our blog, we told you that the Ministry of Environment is responding to an alleged increase in livestock predation from wolves and that population control was their only choice. We disagreed. We have long stated that coexistence is possible, be it with coyotes and raccoons in downtown Toronto, or bears and wolves in rural Alberta. And this week, we're bringing you two experts who will help us with that argument. Louise Leibenberg, owner of the Grazier Ranch in Alberta, will chat with us about Livestock Guardian Dogs, one of the oldest coexistence methods around, dating back hundreds of years in Eastern Europe. We'll also hear from wolf expert Sadie Parr of WolfAwarenessInc.org about the realities of culling wolves and the implications it has for the ecosystem, as well as the governments and landowners who stand behind the guns and traps. I'd like to ask all of you listening to visit our blog and find the action alert we created for Saskatchewan. It's an opportunity to write the Ministry of Environment, and if you're a Saskatchewan resident, your own MPP, and demand an end to this lunacy before it goes too far. Let's get started with the interviews. Louise Leibenberg is a successful rancher and the owner-operator of the Grazier in northern Alberta. What sets Louise apart is her ongoing efforts to introduce humane, predator-friendly practices on her land. A strong advocate, Louise has spoken at two of AFA's conferences in recent years and joined us to explore the ins and outs of livestock guardian dogs. So let's start with what is a livestock guardian dog?
2: Okay. A livestock guardian dog is exactly what it says. It's a dog that guards livestock. So it's less of a family guard dog. It's not like a German shepherd that, you know, will protect the family or a Rottweiler or any of those breeds. It has been bred by shepherds for centuries to live with and um, protect sheep Goats, cattle, from predators. It is they originate. Most of these breeds originate in uh, East Europe, and um, well, actually the whole Europe, but in Eastern Europe you still have quite a high uh, predator load. So you know these breeds were developed there, where there are wolves and brown bears and you know other predators. And um, essentially, they live twenty-four, seven, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, out after the li- livestock. They have a nurturing instinct to the livestock and they have a high territorial um, flock guardian instinct um, which works to keep predators out of their area away from their sheep, away from their goats. So, you know, it's it's a really interesting combination of genetics and, um, you know, these breeds have been developed and evolved for hundreds of years and they're very good at their role and i think what some people might not really understand because the word guardian might put them off they might think of a guard dog as a one being trained to you know bark at people or bite people or chase people away or be a home guard guard dog but that's not it they're also not herding dogs like border collies or australian cattle dogs or kelpies their only job is to live with the livestock and protect the livestock from predators which brings you to the next thing like some people speak to me and they say oh you know i have a border collie across great pyrenees which is one of the livestock guardian dog breeds would it work as a livestock guardian and my answer to that is no because most of the time you're messing with genetics and instincts that is very confusing for dogs so if you mess a herding dog genetics up with a livestock guardian dog genetics your pup might be more border collie in its nature and want to chase the stock rather than protect them so you know it's a very specific group of breeds of dogs that have a very specific job
1: yeah and that's it's it's a fascinating history they have Uh, as you said eastern europe it goes back hundreds of years um now why Do you personally consider that a a livestock guardian dog is better than trying to take some of the more extreme action that we're seeing in various parts of North America these days?
2: Livestock guardian dogs, their first um, sort of line of defense is that they, they claim a territory. So where your sheep are grazing or where your goats are grazing, it becomes the territory of the dogs. So they form a pack of dogs, which... Will ward off other predators. So the first li- line of defense is simply that the fact that they're there, claiming that territory, uh, barking when it needs to be, peeing on the posts, etc., etc., um, tells like coyotes or wolves that another resident pack of dogs already has that territory. So the first line of defense is not aggressive, it's passive aggressive, it's like, it's our space, our territory, stay out of it. If, um, the majority of predators do not want to get into a conflict because if they get hurt in a conflict, they're pretty much dead because they might not be able to hunt or keep up with their pack or they might get infections. We rush our dogs to the vets, but of course a wild wolf cannot do that. So the majority of them will actually just move out of that area and go and find another area to inhabit or go and hunt. Um, they will avoid The predators will avoid the areas where livestock guardian dogs live and work Um, so that's the first line of defense if um, a predator decides well i'm going to go into the territory in any case the second line of defense is that the guardian dogs will you know get into action and will go into a confrontation with a predator which is not what you want it's not as a livestock keeper that you want your dog to go in and have a Fight with a wolf or anything like that. But if it really comes down to it, so if that wolf decides he's definitely going to cross the boundary, jump over the fence, and attack the livestock, the dog will go out and confront the predator. Which, if you are, um, you know, a livestock rancher, you might hear the commotion, um, which will warn you that something's going on. Um, your pack of dogs will work together and chase off you know, the other predators and especially with smaller predators like coyotes. Um, these dogs are big dogs. They hundred, hundred and fifty pound dogs. So, you know, they are formidable. So most coyotes won't even go there. A wolf is maybe a little bit different because they do have the size and the strength, but even then the most of them want to conserve energy. They do not want to get into a conflict. So they'll choose the the easiest route, and that is actually just avoid the area where the livestock
1: guardian dogs are working. And that's to me, it's fascinating. And I look at my dog, who right now is lying at my feet with a a, a a stuffed cube in her mouth, wondering why I'm not playing with her. <laughs> uh, and I think if I put her in the middle of a farm, she'd probably say, "Oh boy, another dog," and go try and play with the bulls. Um, yeah, and that which would
2: probably cause her death.
1: Yes, which is why <laughs> she's know. always on leash, and we live in a city. But uh, um, the the other thing that that kind of leads to is as formidable as a livestock guardian dog is, especially a pack of them, uh, as you've said, is that enough to prevent predation on your property?
2: In some, you know, it it depends a lot on your situation, like how big is your property? How big is your predator load? How much livestock do you run? You know, it, it, it depends on a lot of things, but I always think to myself livestock guardian dogs is probably the first and foremost but you know why not help out and do a few more things it makes your life way easier it makes it easier for the predators to understand that this is not an area that they can freely come hunting Um, you know so I would definitely say you know there are other um, measures that you can take and you know it's it's actually really simple things and it boils down a lot to just livestock management like if you have a dead animal, clean it up. Take it away. If you leave it out there, you do attract scavengers. You attract the ravens. The ravens will attract the coyotes. And, you know, the bigger predators will come in. A bear might come in to clean up that carcass, which you, you're actually drawing in predators then and telling them that, you know, it's kind of easy picking here. You know, it's easy to find a dead carcass. And a lot of research has shown that, you know, most predation on livestock starts off with the eating of carcasses. So, you know, if predators get used to and accustomed to going to a field and knowing that they could scavenge, you know, dead lambs or dead sheep or goats, whatever it is, they kind of hang around in that area. So, you know, clean up your dead stock. Maybe in times where like the coyote pups now are all pretty much adolescents and learning to hunt. So it's really a busy time right now. Um, Maybe it's a good idea just to night corral your animals, you know, at this period where those young pups are learning to hunt. um, You know, night corraling, it makes it easier for the livestock guardian dogs to do their work. Um, Counting your livestock. It doesn't sound like it's a predator deterrent, but if you know you are losing livestock on a regular basis, you know you need to get into action. I think too many um livestock owners maybe don't are not even aware of hey, you know I'm losing more animals in September than I do in July. I wonder why it is, and if you can keep track of those things, it'll help good fencing, of course, if you're not on a big range kind of situation, fencing helps um it is an illusion to think that Fencing will keep predators out, but it does keep your dogs where you need them, keeps your livestock where you need them, and it is a physical barrier that a predator has to cross to get to your livestock. Um, other things, you know, lights on around the barnyard area or around the lambing corral or calving corral, works. sound deterrents, maybe leave a radio on for, you know, in your peak times of lambing. So there's actually quite a few things you could do. And uh, maybe clean up like brushy areas because coyotes can uh, you know hide behind them um they become like a little predator trap that they can catch livestock in so clean up like all piles of dead wood um things like that so i think there's a lot to do there's a there are a lot of options available um and i think if you can make a combination of things your chances of being predated on just drop dramatically and you know that's an ideal situation for a livestock
1: operation i i find it striking how many similarities there are between what you just said and what i turn around and tell people in big cities about raccoons and coyotes and yeah. uh, we uh, clean
2: up your garbage and clean up your dead stock and, well yeah, yeah. It's, it's
1: it's very much the same stuff basic lights um, especially some of the products out there now when you're talking about lights um, yeah. there's solar-powered ones i've seen so you go out if you've got a hundred acres you can stick these things wherever you want and yeah, they outside. they yeah they'll last all winter you just leave them out there. <laughs> and yeah.
2: You do get a little bit of issues with that like, habituation the predators kind of get used to them but you know you can easily move them around and that breaks that habituation pattern um, and as you say you know it's the combination it's you know I wouldn't use lights all year round but at peak times um, night crawling might not always be necessary but, you know, at difficult times, like when predators are whelping and they have a higher need for higher energy food, easy um, easy animals to catch, prey to catch, you know, those are peak times. You can definitely add in a few more surprise uh, uh, methods, even just those motion lights. You know, if a coyote walks past your um, barnyard area and suddenly a light jumps out, up, he's going to get a fright and he's going to run off. And, you know... Yeah, it's just, you know, finding ways and being willing to find those ways that actually makes the whole thing work.
1: And that's that's true of any good business, be it ranching or be it selling insurance. Um, Now, if people are curious about the the livestock guardian dogs, uh, as you know, I spend a lot of time reading about these things, but that's one that you kind of have to really dig into to get good information. Where can people go to kind of maybe get a general overview or if there are any good books out there they should look at?
2: There are a couple of books. One is called "Livestock Protection Dogs," so not livestock guardian dogs, but livestock protection dogs. Um, I think there are only about two or three books um, that are really available, and it's pretty much like how to raise and train your livestock guardian dog. Sometimes dog breed clubs. So if you know, you know certain breeds like the Great Pyrenees and the Maremma and the Shaplaninak and the um, Spanish Mastiff, etc. If you know the type of Breeds of dogs, you could speak to breed clubs in that. Um, if you go on Facebook, there are lots of livestock guardian dog groups. But I think the most important thing is to find somebody that will maybe, uh, if you decide that you need to go down the livestock guardian dog route for your homestead or whatever, is find somebody that will mentor you, that will help you, because, you know, you are raising a rambunctious puppy probably in with your goats and your kids and you know you're going to run into a couple of hiccups it's not always smooth sailing but you know if you can find somebody that'll mentor you and help you get to where you need to be um it's just so much more positive your experience is so much more positive um you know try and find good information and you know find a breeder or a trainer or somebody who's experienced in this field to help you um you know it's not quite as simple as going to, like, Kijiji and saying, you know, okay, I need the bup and the first pup you find on the list, you know, you grab it and put it out of the stock because it might not work out then. There's a little bit more to raising them than generally said. But, you know, there's a lot of information on the internet. You know, if you Google Livestock Guardian Dogs, there's an organization called livestockguardiandogs.org which has a lot of information on it. Um... And, you know, if people really would like more information, they can always contact me and they can find me through you.
1: To learn more about Louise or Livestock Guardian Dogs, visit thegrazier.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening
0: to Defender Radio.
1: First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring, Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453.
2: Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at CoyoteWatchCanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio.
1: We're back to talk more about the shocking plan in Saskatchewan to kill at least 100 wolves after an alleged increase in predation on livestock. Joining us now is Sadie Parr, a longtime wolf advocate who runs the WolfAwarenessInc.org website. Sadie's knowledge on wolves, their social structure, and the ramifications of persecution gives us a unique look at why we must stop this cull in Saskatchewan. So why don't we start and examine that concept of livestock predation by wolves. Is it really as big an issue as some of these governments and insurance companies and ranchers make it out to be?
0: Well, that's a really good question, Michael. Um, It's definitely... I think it's important to look at the facts and figures and understand where they are coming from and making sure that the numbers that are being provided are accurate. As scientists have to be accurate, um, when we're painting pictures, um, we're talking about um, more than just numbers. Um, This affects people economically and emotionally, and we do have to be uh, accurate in the figures that we that we discussed. Now that being said, um, wolves and large predators, where they overlap with livestock, there will always be losses. Um, the fact of the matter is it's a really, it's a minor amount that is contributed by predators when you put it in perspective. Um, over the large scale, it's usually between 2 to 5% of livestock that is lost to wolves. Um, things such as lightning, transportation, uh, poisonous plants, birthing, calving uh, complications, those are larger threats that we often aren't heard uh, or, or don't discuss. Um, but when something is lost to a natural pred- predator, we certainly do um, point the finger and start blaming. Now. Like I said, there will be um, losses where these animals overlap. However, much of this can be prevented. Um, And I think it's very interesting to point out at this point that regions of the world that have not lost wolves and other large predators have a far higher tolerance for them than places um, such as north america that have eradicated wolves in the past and as these animals are naturally um, returning to the landscape we've simply forgotten many of the methods on how we can coexist with them so it's not just understanding wolf and predator behavior but it's looking at human behavior what we have done in the past what works what doesn't work and making sure that we're not repeating the same mistakes of indiscriminate killing which can be expensive traumatic to other species and really don't solve the issue at hand which is to decrease and prevent livestock losses to natural predators.
1: Well and let's look a little more at that the uh, the concept of a cull a limited hunt whatever label want you want to attach to it uh, we know that in some species, for example, mesopredators like coyotes and raccoons, the persecution of them actually generates a higher population rate. And that's one of the remarkable evolutionary traits of those animals. Uh, but we also know that that kind of killing will often go after the larger, older adults. Now, in the, sen- in the social structure of wolves, what are the potential ramifications of breaking up that social unit?
2: There are
0: so many uh, potential ramifications and I still don't believe that we know or understand all of them. certainly more than just population control or, po- or or numbers, we're actually affecting the behavior of wolves, which in and of itself, um, them as a social unit has evolved over millennia, and that is part of their ecological role. It's not the individual wolf, it's the wolf as a social unit or a pack. And with most other social animals, um, whales, elephants, primates, that also show high levels of intelligence, um, wolves have a prolonged dependency on their parents in their youth. So they'll actually spend up to a quarter of their life learning from mom and dad and aunts and uncles and the rest of their family how to survive in the wild. So this is um, not only what to hunt, but how to hunt, how to choose something um, that is going to be safe to take down as well. Uh, Reuse of den sites, migration routes. So all of these are certainly um, important in the survival of wolves, but disrupting the, the social structure of a defined wolf pack really can lead to social chaos, and with that we can start to see unregulated population controls. So as with coyotes, it's usually one breeding pair for a wolf pack. And when we start messing around with that, um, we really change the rules. We start to see often, um, and this was uh, one example is Algonquin Provincial Park in Ontario. Before buffer zones were established around these parks, wolves were highly exploited. And the exploited population was, um, some of the symptoms were, Not reusing den sites, not hunting cooperatively as a team because they hadn't learned how to and they didn't have the practice or experience of working together. having smaller territories to defend and actually smaller packs. So you can have a higher wolf density in an exploited wolf population, but it's similar to humans reacting in a war zone. Um, We start breaking rules and the population is skewed to a lower age structure and that's kind of like if we had teenagers running the world. Um, that
1: is truly frightening. It,
0: it is It is truly frightening, for sure. And, you know, there's also been research to show that pack size, and again, exploited uh, wolf populations will often have smaller pack sizes. Smaller packs will often actually kill more at higher rates um, than larger pack sizes, because they can only consume so much at a time, and smaller packs can be outcompeted competed by things such as um, ravens or, or other scavengers. Um, so, really, larger packs are an intact, or, or sorry, are, are a symbol of, you know, a more balanced um, ecological role of a wolf pack in nature. The other thing that happens in this shift in um, behavior is that, like I'd mentioned, the, the wolf pack is not going to necessarily remain as an intact unit or a team. Sometimes you'll get splintering with um, an increase in production rate, but also what we have then is the wolves that were killed in that area are simply going to be replaced either by new wolves coming in and taking over that vacant territory um, or the population uh, reestablishing itself very quickly. So again, we've done nothing to change the game. Um, we've just inadvertently disrupted some some very highly intelligent and social families.
1: And I, I've got about five different places I want to go with you now. So I'm going to just jump all over the map rather than be a good reporter and do it in some kind of logical order. Um, how is it then? I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is relatively new. But some of the studies um, that you're referencing date back to the 1970s, I believe. So a two-part question, why is it being ignored and how do we stop it from being ignored by politicians and landowners?
0: Those are two very important questions, I think, if, if we are going to resolve any of this, Michael. Um, what we do know is that killing wolves and other large predators, in the name of preventing livestock losses in history, has not worked. Um, Where we've practiced that for decades, we're not seeing a decrease in the amount of livestock being lost. So let's be clear. Killing natural predators is reactionary. It's not preventative. It's not going to solve the issue. It's something that we do because something has happened, and maybe there's some sense of compensation um, towards the people just feeling that they've done something to resolve or Absolve the issue. Um, I think that it is important to sympathize with livestock producers who do put time and energy into raising their animals with care. Certainly, it's not easy to come across those animals when they have been, um, when they've come into conflict with natural predators. So we cannot dismiss those things. But what we do have to do is focus on the important conversation about how to deal with this and how to prevent it, which is what you've nailed. So I think one of the things that we certainly have to do is listen to the ranchers and promote them that are finding success through predator-friendly husbandry practices. So um, Louise Grazery in High Prairie Farms or Grasery Farms is one great example of this. There are several organizations in the United States. The High Loan Ranch is one, Um, the Wood River Wolf Project is another. And these are examples where ranchers and conservationists and biologists and First Nations and many other shareholders are working together to find solutions about um, preventative So you'd also mention that a lot of this really isn't new. Um, some of the oldest forms of deterring predators from um, hanging around livestock is establishing a human presence there so age-old practices such as uh, employing shepherds or herders or range riders these are all essential Um, usually that mere human presence is enough to deter predators from being in the area or at least disrupt their behavior from um, one pattern to another Um, working with other alternative livestock guardian dogs or animals um, fencing or fladry fladry is being brought in to modern times again but historically this was actually used in Europe to trap wolves. So it's effective, um inexpensive and it's simply uh, providing a visual barrier around your livestock at certain times of the year. Now, wolves and other large carnivores are intelligent and they're adaptable. So we're going to have to recognize that we can't put up one thing um for, you know, the entire year and just count on the fact that it's going the work. We have to be willing to invest our time and energy. Um into maintaining our vigilance and changing it up and being adaptive to the situation as weather patterns change and natural patterns change and calves are born on public land and and things like that we certainly do have to be adaptable but the more that we can um, recognize the success that is going on um, by the people who are are leading this industry in a predator-friendly way um, I think that the the better, the, the further ahead we'll be. So we certainly do have to urge government to um, really get up to the modern understanding, ecological understanding of wolves and large predators and natural carnivores. They certainly do have an ecological role, an economic role. Um, it is far more financially sustainable to uh, prevent. Livestock losses, like i would mentioned, through prevention. So um, providing incentives for guardian dogs or range riders versus bounty programs. Um, Really, again, bounties and indiscriminate killing does not lead to uh, a decrease in livestock losses, but it can create more issues. Um, So urging the government, letting them know that this is important, that we want to see investments in terms of educating ranchers in these methods, um, providing incentives for them to be able to practice these methods. And I also am a a strong supporter of carcass removal programs. Those have been something that um, in previous years the government had been um, providing in certain provinces and um, we really have have lost that since the outbreak of mad cow disease. And that's something that we should get back to for a number of reasons. It really just, um, the first step is providing a landscape that is not attractive to natural predators. Um, and we can do that, like I said, by managing the landscape where we are raising livestock.
1: (laughs) Something that has always, uh, endeared me to some and made others hate me is my propensity for asking why. Um, especially high school teachers in English classes. Uh, they were not a fan of that question. But I, when I see a situation like this, my immediate thought is why is this the answer and why is something else not being considered? So how much of this, and you and I have talked about wolves in the past and how there's kind of a, a love them or hate them attitude uh, in the country. How much of this falls down to the old stereotypes about the big bad wolf about, the, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing, all of those old fairy tales and things like that leading into a culture for people to immediately distrust and dislike wolves in a conflict situation, whereas with a lot of other animals, people are much more willing. Uh, uh, amazingly, I find people much more open to coyote coexistence because they they don't have that same level uh, of fear or distrust of them as they do with wolves.
0: Well, there are probably less demonic childhood stories written about coyotes per se. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's one. And, you know, even today, like I'm sure we've mentioned before, Hollywood is still perpetuating that false image. Um, The Grey, which came out a few years ago about this, you know, man-hungry wolf, didn't even use a real animal. It was all computer animated and larger than life. Um, Why? That's a very good question. I think that part of it is human nature and unfortunately it comes down to fear of the unknown. Um, Chief Dan George, I paraphrase from him quite often, but what we don't understand we fear and what we fear we destroy. So, there still is, um, you know, there is a lot more Uh, public information and awareness about the ecological role of wolves, um, but I don't think it's reached critical mass yet. And our management of wolves and other large carnivores has not kept up with our understanding of their ecological role. Um, So I think that a large part of this is really a desire to control um, which is age old it is control the wilderness let 's um let 's take the wild out of nature and conquer it so that it is predictable so that we have um, weather patterns which um, are predictable for us and i mean some some of this is uh, You can see why people strive for it, um, comfort and things like that. But I am one who believes that the soul and the spirit are really truly awakened by wilderness and the unknown. Um, I'm not saying that nature is always gentle um but i do think that nature knows best and that micromanipulating or controlling um animal numbers or natural patterns is a myth and it's something that humans try to do because we would like to think that we have control over our environment. Um, but I believe that the reality is there are still so many unknowns, and the more we tinker, the more harm we quite often do. Um, I, in North America, strive for maintaining true wilderness where predator prey can coexist as nature intended. Um, What we hear now are often protected areas, which are so small that they are virtually islands of extinction in a sea of humanity. Um, And that humanity, that sea, is really bent on controlling everything. Um, I mean, we all drive our own car with the air conditioning and uh, the radio station that we like. and don't want to slow down if something comes across our path. So human nature, um, you know, we are going towards this belief that we want things to be predictable and comfortable. However, um, we are learning more and more that nature is unpredictable and we need nature to be able to benefit from the ecosystem services that are provided From things like top predators, Um, wolves not only contribute to controlling ungulate populations, but things such as carbon sequestration, uh, air and water purification, disease control, mesopredator control, Um, all of these things have wide-ranging effects. And the more we tinker or try to manage or manipulate um, numbers, the more we're really just creating a game farm and i believe um, becoming further and further out of um, the natural balance you cannot always unscramble an egg or put nature back once it has been um, ripped apart or or altered so that's something that we have learned about apex predators and keystone species such as wolves and another reason why um, we really should not be killing them indiscriminately
1: to learn more about Sadie's work, visit WolfAwarenessInc.org. That's the show for this week, folks. Remember, you can get more information on all of these issues at FurBearDefenders.com. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.